So it's Easter Sunday, and I thought to switch things up, instead of talking about the resurrection, we'd do a sermon on tithing. Everybody ready? Uh, just, just kidding. Um, <laughs> wait a minute. No, Easter actually requires some things of us. As a pastor, it, it sets for me what the sermon content will be, at least if, if I have a small amount of sense. Uh, and and it, it changes you too. Uh, for example, um, I've noticed a lot of you men who normally uh, dress quite masculinely are wearing pastels. And I'm not going to give you a pass on it. But it's Easter and your wife bought it and you correspond with the rest of the family and so you're wearing pastel. And some of you guys are wearing it like a hoss, right? And, and I noted that a few people that, to be honest, uh, usually I see in like wind pants are wearing full-on suits this morning. Um, a few other things that Easter requires of us. Uh, one is that you're going to get together with family today, some of whom you do not like. Let's just be honest about that. Because everyone has a crazy uncle or aunt, and if you, if you kind of observe your family, you say, I don't think we have that person. I, I want to just politely inform you, you might be that person. <laughs> and that may be why you don't think they're in your family. We're going to get together after church. We're probably going to eat ham. Trying to think of a few other things, but that's Easter. Easter changes things. Now, what I want to talk about for a little bit are three particular men that Easter changed much more than their routine for a Sunday. That for them, the experience of Easter radically altered the trajectory of their entire lives. Because I think in looking at these three men, we will find what the intention of God in raising his son from the dead was for us. That it would not tweak our schedule or our wardrobe for a day, but that it would create a cosmic shift across every aspect of life. And so as we jump into the scriptures this morning, I want to begin as we pray and ask God's blessing on this time. And then we'll jump into the lives of these three men in the Bible. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that your son finished the work of redemption, dying for our sins, and that he rose again. We thank you that because of your grace, we're alive today to breathe and eat and enjoy everything we have because all life is a gift from you. And we come before you today not in strength, but rather in humility, knowing that it took the very death of your son to draw us near, to make us worshipers. So, Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit this morning, that he would govern every word and emotion of my heart, and that he would govern and, Lord, unveil the thoughts and deeds of all of our hearts. That we would be laid bare before your word this morning, that we would be receptive to your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So I want us to look at the story of three men in the Bible very quickly. We don't have time to do a full biography, but there's three men that we see drastically different pictures of at different times in the Scripture. The first I want to introduce you to is a man named Peter. I'm sure you've heard of him. Peter was one of the original 12 followers of Jesus. He was a very passionate man, a man of impulse who, who took action sometimes without thought, but who always took action. I can relate to Peter because he often spoke first and thought second. He was a man of, of emotion and of great swings up and down. 
If you follow the life of Peter through the Bible, you'll see some great things. He follows Jesus faithfully. He's the only of the 12 disciples who has the courage when he sees Jesus walking on the water to actually step out and go to him on the waves. Yet before long, his courage has faded to fear and doubt and he begins to sink and the Lord saves him. He committed himself fully to Jesus until things got hard and then he faltered. And on one of the last nights that Jesus was alive, as he's spending time with his 12 closest friends, with these men who have followed him for a duration of three years, have gone through everything with him. He gathers them together and he has some words for Peter that are quite difficult to receive in John chapter 13. He looks to Peter in verse 36 and says to him, Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him. Where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So we're going to set the stage. Peter's been all over the place. He's passionate and he's saying, where are you going, Jesus? Because I want to go with you. And, and, and Jesus says, you, you can't come with me, but later you will. And Peter says, why not? I'll, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I will die for you. And, and Jesus says, really, you will, Peter. You're, you're that committed, Peter. And then he breaks the hard news to him that before morning, he will deny even knowing Jesus three times. Now, Peter protests. He doesn't believe that to be true. But I want you to see what happens just a few chapters later in John chapter 18. In verse 15, we find Jesus has been arrested. He's been drugged before the high priest and the religious authorities in a mock trial. Simon Peter says in verse 15, follow Jesus. And so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are, are, are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servant and officers had made a coal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Now between these two events, something interesting has happened. Some men came to arrest Jesus as he prayed in the garden. Peter, in a, in a desire to defend his Lord, draws a sword. He slices the ear off of one of the arresting officers and Jesus heals the man. So Peter had this great courage for a moment and then quickly faded. He was brave before the soldiers, but he was weak and cowardly before a servant girl just a few hours later. That's Peter. A man of passion, lacking stability. Now, the interesting thing is that if you know the story of the Bible, if you know the story of the church, you'll find that Peter does not stay this unstable man. In fact, his mother had named him Simon, but Jesus says your name will be Peter, which means rock, signifying stability and strength. And just a few chapters later, about 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus... Peter stands and boldly preaches in Jerusalem, the scene of the crime where Jesus had been murdered, the gospel. 
proclaims that, that you've put Jesus, the only Son of God, to death, but God has raised Him up and He is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. Boldly. And 3,000 people trust in Christ that first day. In Acts chapter 4, the stories continue. Peter had been preaching openly in the temple. He'd been arrested and kept in, in, in jail overnight. Then he was drawn out before the religious leaders and he was questioned. And they told him, you need to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. To which he said just plainly. Let's look at it in verse 7 of Acts 4. When they had set him in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this man been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and by this man standing before you as well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In just 50 days, Peter goes from being the man who would do anything to ensure that he was not associated with Jesus, denying him over and over in just one night, to being the man who stands boldly before the religious leaders of his day. Men who he would have respected greatly. And saying, you killed the very Son of God, and God raised him up, and yet he's still here to save you. And he preaches with such boldness that when they let him go, the religious leaders say, aren't these just those those fishermen from Galilee? And they took note that he had been with Jesus. It's a drastic change. Peter's become a rock, and he's no longer the floundering disciple. There's another man that was one of the twelve that that we see a huge transformation in. His name was Thomas. In fact, his doubt and failings of faith are so common that we actually have a phrase in our vernacular that we call people a doubting Thomas. If you're unfamiliar where that term came from, this is the guy. Wonderful to go down in history as the guy who didn't believe. And yet Thomas wrestled with his faith. He was one of the twelve, to be honest, we don't know a lot about him prior to the event we're going to read. He seems to kind of be um, incredibly average. He doesn't fall, he doesn't raise up into the, the heights of someone who's a leader. He doesn't fall back amongst the twelve as someone causing problems. He's just present. His name shows up on all the lists, but that's about it. In the Gospel of John, we find the story of Thomas. Jesus had been crucified stories had begun to come in that he in fact had been raised from the dead as he said he would Thomas wrestled with this in chapter 20 verse 24 of the gospel of John it tells us now Thomas one of the twelve called the twin for obvious reasons he had a twin he was not with them when Jesus came so the other disciples told him we have seen the Lord but he said to them unless I see His hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Thomas was was doubting his friends, people he knew. He said, we have literally physically seen Jesus raised. And Thomas says, unless I touch him, unless I see the marks from the nails and from the spear and actually touch them, I will never believe. And I want you to understand what happens to Thomas after this moment. The Bible doesn't pick up the story of Thomas. Church tradition and historians do. The story is that Thomas went through Syria down into India preaching the gospel constantly when persecution rose up in Jerusalem. And that he would not walk away from his faith. And and faced with the option of death or recanting his faith, faith in Jesus, Thomas chose the spear through his heart rather than to deny his Savior. Thomas was a man of doubt who, by God's grace, became a a man of unshakable faith. The third man I'd like to introduce you to is Paul, the murderous Pharisee. We know him as the Apostle Paul. Prior to meeting Christ, Paul was known as Saul. He was well-trained, he was prominent, and he was rising through the ranks in Judaism, and his preferred method of winning the approval of his leaders was to persecute this new religious group called the way who followed Jesus, who said that Jesus was the only son of God who had died for our sins and rose again. And Paul, zealous for the traditions of his people, went pursuing his followers actively. In fact, the first mention of Paul in the scriptures is in Acts chapter 7. Towards the end of the book of Acts, there's a story of a man named Stephen, who the Bible says was faithful and full of the Holy Spirit. He had been arrested and he had been drawn before the leaders and he began to preach. And he preached the gospel to them at which they they began to pick up large rocks and stone him. And this is when Saul or Paul enters the story of scripture. In verse 58 it says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. In chapter 8 verse 1 the scriptures also tell us Saul gave approval of this execution. And arose that day a great persecution against the church, and they were scattered in regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, the story continues in the life of Saul. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul's mission in life is to go around persecuting the church, threatening murder and all sorts of evil and harm against those who follow Jesus, arresting them, bringing them back to Jerusalem to be bound and held in prison, awaiting sentencing. But before this goes much further, in Romans chapter 11, we find the story of what happened to Paul and a new sense of passion and identity. As he speaks to the church in Rome, he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. So the man who attacked and persecuted the church says, now I am the one sent by Jesus to go to all the world and proclaim the good news that Jesus is the only Lord and Savior. How does that happen? 
I love the story of Paul because it's not like he was a bum hanging out in his parents' basement playing Xbox eating Cheetos. And then all of a sudden, Paul kind of got passionate about something and went out and got a job, cut his hair, and tucked in his shirt. Well, Paul doesn't go from being a, a, a lethargic bum to being a passionate man. What happens is he goes from being a passionate man to doing a complete 180 and having an entirely different passion. That's drastic. And I want you to think through the common denominator for these three men. Why does Peter, the floundering disciple, become this rock that the church looks to for strength and leadership? How does Thomas become a man of quivering doubt to being a man of great, unshakable faith? How does Paul become a murderer of Christians to the apostle to the entire non-Jewish world? How does that happen? The common denominator is this, and it's very simple. They had an interaction with the risen Jesus, and it entirely changed them. It didn't change their wardrobe on Easter Sunday. It didn't change their Sunday schedule. It radically shifted the very foundations of their lives. Meeting Jesus changes you. To say that you're a Christian and that it hasn't sunken into any part of life is as silly as me telling you that I was hit by a Mack truck on the way to church this morning and that I dusted myself off and here I am. There's no marks. The shirt's not even dirty. None of you would believe that because it's obviously foolish. And when we read the story of the Bible, if we proclaim to be followers of Christ and it hasn't radically shifted us as it did these men when they encountered the risen Savior, then I think we're fooling ourselves. I want to give you a few stats, maybe the tail of the tape, if you will. Barna Research Group and the Pew Research Forum, both groups coming from entirely different perspectives in terms of faith, doing studies on religion in America. And what they found is that almost four out of five Americans, if given a multiple choice test, will claim to be Christians of some flavor or another. Four out of five. The weird thing is when we begin to ask these professing Christians what they believe, many of them no longer believe God to be the supreme creator and ruler of the universe. Many of these Christians no longer believe Jesus to be the divine and only Son of God. A large portion of them no longer believe God to be uh, the one personal God who rules over all things, but see Him as some impersonal force. And it may be uh, we're all gods in some sense. Tens of, tens of millions of them have rejected the belief that either the Holy Spirit or Satan are actual spiritual beings. And right at half of these Christians believe that the Bible is not reliable revelation from God. Another study was released this week that I found almost humorous because it was so inconsistent. The study indicated that 77% of Americans believe that our country is in spiritual and moral decay. And at the same time, two-thirds of them believe that the Bible has the answer to all of life's meaningful questions. But the same percentage said they did not want to hear what the Bible had to say about anything. Now, I love this. So think through the math here. Most Americans believe that we are in spiritual decay. Most Americans believe the Bible has the answers to our problems. And most Americans do not want to hear what the Bible has to say about our problems. Somewhere in the mix, I think there's a disconnect. 
it doesn't make sense. And, and what I think the reality is, is that many of these Christians are not Christians. If they don't believe that Jesus is the divine son of God. They're not Christians. Now, they might have gotten wet at church one day and their parents might have brought them to church and they might have been to Sunday school and their family might have parties at Christmas and Easter. But none of those make you Christian. Those largely make you American. In a community like Tomball, almost everyone in our city has gotten wet at church and is on the roll of a church somewhere that doesn't make them Christians. Well, that sounds harsh, particularly on Easter Sunday. This is all supposed to be Easter lilies, butterflies, and bunnies. The problem is that Jesus doesn't allow me to talk to you that way. In Matthew chapter 7, this is where it begins troubling for me. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has some very interesting words that I think we have to wrestle with. Scriptures say this, beginning in verse 13. Actually, excuse me, we'll go to verse 15 or 14. No, it is 13. Good job, guys. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So I'm going to stop there. Jesus says the way that leads to destruction is wide and easy and many people find it. This is Jesus. This is in red letters. If you don't like it, you can take it up with him. This is what he says. Verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Few. So Jesus says many people find destruction, but few people find life. So I want you to look at the words of Jesus and compare that to our stats that say almost 80% of Americans are Christians. And I want you to understand that Jesus says that statistic is unreliable. I want you to continue with me in Matthew 7, verse 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, the day of judgment... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this is tough. And I want you to understand why this is hard. Because Jesus says there are many people who believe they are, in fact, Christians. Who will come before him on the day of judgment and Jesus' response will be to them, I never knew you. He doesn't say a few people. I want you to understand, he says many people. Many people who flooded churches, not just this Sunday on Easter. But notice these people. They said, didn't we do all this good stuff for you? These are church going moral people. They're good people by our standards. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. And I want to get to the heart of that. Because I want you to see when they stand before Christ on judgment, what their plea is for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It is not about the work of Jesus. What is it? Didn't we do all this good stuff, Jesus? 
And, and the whole heart of the gospel is this, is that you can't do enough stuff. So if you think that you're going to be good enough and play by the rules long enough and build enough houses for Habitat for Humanity that all of a sudden Jesus will overlook all of your sin, you're fooling yourself. You're like the person who is obviously guilty of murder standing before the courtroom saying, yes, I did it, but I gave a lot to charity. Can you give me a not guilty verdict? We all know that's not justice. And so if God is to be just, he is to look upon sin. And he must judge it regardless of how many good things we did, even if we attach Jesus' name to it. That's just what Jesus said. The root that Jesus is getting at here is that self-righteous people are not accepted into the kingdom. You know, they don't plead the work of Jesus. They don't say, Jesus, I'm, we're welcome into the kingdom because you died for us, because you paid for our sin and you conquered death for us. That's not their plea. Their plea is, look what we did. They're self-righteous. They believe that their work, their duty, their religious service is sufficient enough that God should look over their sin. And, and there's a lot of ways to be self-righteous. There are religious ways to be self-righteous. Well, we believe that, that being morally good people, being better than all of them out there is enough. We believe that that doing the right religious ceremonies at the right time, that that will please God. That's religious self-righteousness. But it's not only the religious that are self-righteous, also the irreligious. You see, the religious self-righteous understands that they need a Savior, but they think at some point they outgrew the need for it as they got better. They used to need one, but now they're awesome enough that they don't need Jesus. The irreligious self-righteous person says, there's no way God would judge me, I'm I'm great. The problem is, is we all know it's not true. We all know that if we step back, if we think about our lives, even just looking at the Ten Commandments, we know we've broken them and we're guilty. And if anyone in the room says, know what, I don't think I have, please, I will be hanging out around here afterward. I would love to take the quiz with you. Because none of us pass that test. And what Jesus is telling us is there will be no people that think they've earned righteousness in heaven. There'll be many people who think they have. But his response will be plain and simple to them. The only means of entrance into God's kingdom. The only means of adoption into God's family. Is believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. And that his work on the cross alone is enough. That's it. That's why we celebrate on Easter. Because the work is finished. And that's great cause for celebration. I want you to imagine uh, closing on a home and you're taking on a huge mortgage. You might celebrate because you have this new home, but it's nowhere near the celebration if that home were given to you free and clear. With no payments, no strings, just enjoy it. The celebration's different. So we celebrate on Easter and we do it big, not because Jesus did something great for us and and we've got to kind of keep it up, but because he did everything for us and we just get to enjoy it. And so we celebrate today. Being good enough isn't enough. We must accept first that we're not good. And when we do that, Jesus meets us where we are. That's what you see in the life of these men. These three men, all of them struggling in different ways. And Jesus goes to them. With Peter, he had fallen. And Jesus restored him and commissioned him, saying, Feed my sheep. Lead the church, Peter. Thomas says, I won't believe unless I touch him. So what does Jesus do? He he shows up and he says, Thomas, 
Take your hand. Place it here. He meets him where he is. And Paul is on his way to Damascus to arrest and murder Christians. And what does Jesus do? He knocks him off of his donkey in a flash of light and meets him where he is and draws him to God. And I want you to understand the Bible says that Jesus has done that for all of us. In Romans chapter 5 verse 6, the scriptures are so abundantly clear on this. For while we were still weak, Notice the Bible's depiction of us as weak. You say, oh, religion's for weak people. Yes, it is. The problem for people who say that is they don't understand how incredibly weak we all are when we come to the strength of a righteous God. This is why we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who, us, the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die, but God showed his love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, while we were ungodly, and while we were running around chasing our sin, Christ died for us. He met us where we were. And if you're in this place today and you're here because it's Easter and that's what you do and you look at this depiction of how the Spirit of God gave new life, new uh, hopes, new dreams, new passions to these men and that's the biblical picture of what Jesus does when we trust Him and you would say, I don't think I've ever placed my faith in Him. Then here's what I would ask of you. What today would keep you from doing it? What today hinders you from placing your faith in Jesus? From quitting trying to to righteously define yourselves under your own terms, but to look to God in weakness and in your sin and accept the gift that He's given you. What's there between you? Because Jesus hasn't placed anything there. What He has asked is that you turn to Him and trust Him. And that in that moment, His Spirit begins to take residence in you and change you from the inside out. That's the promise that we get. And Romans chapter 8 also tells us that the very power of God by His Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you who believe. So whatever that sin is, whatever that struggle is, whatever that guilt and shame is, the power of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, who rose Him from the dead, is at work in those believe. And if the power is sufficient to take Jesus' cold, lifeless, brutalized body and raise Him up in perfect glory, then He is powerful enough to do this work of transformation in you. God is good. Jesus is alive. And He will come again. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time in your word this morning. We pray that it would convict us, encourage us, and strengthen us. Lord, I pray for your spirit to move freely in this place. That as we would identify those things that have kept us from, from following you, those barriers, that we, if we would just kind of enumerate them in our minds, that your spirit, out of a mercy to us, would begin to, to answer those questions and remove those barriers. That as we... Seeing as we prepare for the Lord's table and as we worship you, that your spirit would be at work knocking down those walls in our hearts that we might receive salvation from you. And for those of us who have, I pray that once again we would be reminded of your grace and mercy to us and we would praise you with all the joy and passion that your love deserves. In Jesus' name, amen.